Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you. It is an honor to be your speaker this morning. This morning, I want to talk to you for a little bit about uh, this thought of self-reliance, or maybe it might be better described as over-self-reliance. Um, and so I want to begin this morning by asking a question. How often would you say the average American today thinks about God? Of course, that is a very broad question with probably too many factors to analyze. Is a person uh, religious? Uh, how old is this person? What kind of upbringing did this person have? Um, again, probably too broad, um, too broad for us to analyze just, just um, that question all by itself. But if we ask this question simply as a function of time, or maybe by time period, could we make some progress that way? What if we asked that question this way? How often would you say a person thinks about God in 2023 compared to 1923 compared to 1823? I think probably all of us would come to the same conclusion that the average thoughts per day in this country about God have decreased over the past 200, 150 years or so. We have data, um, not all the way back to 1823, but we have data from at least the past 50 years that show pretty conclusively that religious affiliation in this country is on the decline, uh, on the decline pretty exponentially. Our red line here represents uh, people who claim to be Christians. This is 1972 all the way to, I believe, 2021 on the decline in the past 50 years, while religious or people who claim to be not religiously affiliated at all, obviously is, of course, on the rise. So we have data, again, my point is, I think we can conclude that over the last X number of years, your average thoughts per day about God is on the decline. It's on the decline. And of course, here again, there are probably too many factors to analyze when, when talking about this question as well. One factor I do want to talk about this morning, though, is prosperity. As prosperity has increased in this country, or at the same time that prosperity has increased in this country, religious affiliations has decreased in this country. So the rise in prosperity, I think, is one of the contributing factors to the decrease in religious affiliation. Prosperity or the increase in prosperity in this country is the factor that I want to focus on today. One famous American put it this way, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and, and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. That famous American was Abraham Lincoln. In 1863, 
That was 160 years ago. Mr. Lincoln says, we have become too proud. Our success, our prosperity has caused us to start thinking, we don't need God. My friends, if people started thinking that apparently in 1863, would you not agree that in 2023, the problem is definitely at least still here, if not much worse? Mr. Lincoln says, our prosperity has caused us to think to ourselves, we don't need God. And that's what I want to talk about today, because today we too live in a time of unprecedented prosperity. We live in a time of unprecedented prosperity. I'm not just talking about wealth, although the average wealth, the, the median wealth in this country has surely increased from 1863 in the past 160 years. Um, but I'm not just talking about wealth. Think about, too, all of the modern conveniences that we enjoy. Judy and I ran an experiment yesterday. We wanted to figure out how many clicks on, the, on our phone, how many clicks would it take to order peanut butter from the grocery store? Peanut butter is an essential at our house. We can't go without peanut butter. How many clicks do you think? It took 10 movements of the thumb, 10 clicks of the thumb, and peanut butter was ordered. And in X number of hours, get a notification and you drive and you grab it from some little girl that brings it out to you in the parking lot. 10 clicks and you got your groceries ordered. I ran another experiment yesterday. How many clicks would it take to order laundry detergent from Amazon? Any guesses? Seven clicks. Took seven movements of my thumb. Laundry detergent was ordered and if we still lived in Nashville, it would show up on my doorstep in two hours. Unprecedented. This is unprecedented prosperity that we live in. But I think about, too, one more thing that I think about. Think about the shift in this country over the past 160, 150 years or so from predominantly an agrarian workforce, right? Back in the late 19th century, most of the workforce was, were farmers. You know, if you're a farmer, especially before the advent of cheap fertilizer in the 1920s, you put a seed in the ground, and sure, there are some best management practices that you employ, but really, whether or not that seed grows, your entire livelihood is really out of your control. You've got no control whether or not it's gonna rain. You've got very little control on whether or not that seed's gonna grow. And so faith in God is almost a prerequisite for an agrarian society. You, you've got to have it. If you don't, and it, you know, drought hits, you're, you're in bad shape. But as we've moved as a country post-industrial revolution to where now a majority of our workforce, it may be not a majority, but a large portion of our workforce are guys like me who sit behind a computer screen for eight hours a day and click their lives away. You take all of these things together in 2023, sure, your average, average Joe out there, sure. Of course he thinks, well, I don't need God. I don't need God. He sits behind his computer screen. He checks his 401k. He clicks a button 10 times and his groceries are ordered. All of his needs are met. 
My point today, this morning is, if we are not careful, the prosperity, this, this time of unprecedented prosperity that we live in can cause us to develop that same sense that Mr. Lincoln warned us about 160 years ago, cause us to develop an over, uh, a sense of over-self-reliance where we just simply forget about God. We go days, maybe weeks, maybe longer. We don't pray, we don't think about Him. That's the danger here. That's the danger I'm trying to point out. I want to take you to a story in the Old Testament this morning where I think this exact scenario plays out. This exact, I think that this exact scenario happens to a man in the 14th through 16th chapters of 2 Chronicles. That's where our story will take place. First, though, our purpose this morning, our learning objective, recognize through the study, we want to recognize three dangers of over-self-reliance in order that we might turn away from self-reliance to God-reliance, living in each area of our lives in complete trust and dependence on God. Let's get started. Second Chronicles chapter 14. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try my best to paraphrase our way, paraphrase our way through this. Here in 2 Chronicles, the 14th chapter, you'll remember, we find ourselves in the time period where the kingdom is split. This is after the death of Solomon. The kingdom has split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. I think maybe the, the word to best describe this time period is turmoil. To put it quite frankly, it's civil war. This is a time of civil war. It's a time of extreme turmoil, and um, just there's no peace to talk about. Now, you remember we've talked about in our lessons on Ecclesiastes, perhaps you don't, and that's okay, um, but the immense wealth that Solomon accumulated during this time. Well, now the kingdom is split, and you can imagine what the neighboring kingdoms start doing. They all start peeking over the fence. To, you know, they're wondering what in the world is going to happen with all this gold. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, we are three uh, generations, I think, removed from David. The first king of the southern kingdom of Judah is Rehoboam. Rehoboam reigns, the Bible says, for 17 years in Jerusalem. And Rehoboam is really kind of a, he's kind of a mixed bag. He, he starts off good, he's, and then he goes, you know, he falls away, and then he comes back, and he falls away. Um, but two verses, I think, sum up his, his, uh, his reign, or 1 Kings 14 and 30, where the Bible says, and there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. A lot of turmoil going on during this time. Second uh, Chronicles 12 and 1 says, it was when the, when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong that he and all Israel forsook the law of the Lord. So both, both, both physically, again, there's war happening all over the place, and then also religiously. Things are not going very well. Things are not going very well. We read uh, there in Second Chronicles that I, th I believe it was five years into Rehoboam's reign, Shishak the Egyptian comes up against Judah. The Bible says that he came with an army uh, so large that they couldn't be numbered. They couldn't be numbered. Remember, during Solomon's empire, it was very rich. The kingdom split. It's weak. Here come the Egyptians. The Egyptians come in with an army that's without number, and they sack Judah. They take away what seems to be, as you read it, if not all of the wealth of the country, a large portion of it. 
So Shishak the Egyptian uh, attacks. Things aren't going very well. Rehoboam dies after his 17th year uh, reigning. Well, then his son Abijah takes over. Abijah, the Bible says, reigns for only three years uh, there in Judah. And Abijah really, along the same lines, not much improvement from his father Rehoboam. Uh, two, two verses to sum up his reign, 2 Chronicles 13, 2, and there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Elsewhere it says uh, there was constant war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Jeroboam's the king of the northern kingdom. So things, again, aren't going very well physically, probably economically. Uh, 1 Kings 15 and 3 says this, And he walked in the sins of his father, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. So still, here for 20 years after Solomon's death, things are not going very well. Religiously, physically, economically, you name it, things aren't going very well. Well, then we come to our protagonist this morning. His name is Asa. He is the son of Abijah and the grandson of Rehoboam. Asa reigns, the Bible says, for 41 years in Jerusalem. That's the second longest reign of all the kings that you read of uh, in the two kingdoms. 41 years he reigns. Now, a lot of commentators think because Abijah only reigns for three years, that Asa was pretty young when he takes the throne. A lot of them think, or at least a couple of them that I read, think he's somewhere around 20 years old maybe even younger, 15, 20 years old when he takes the throne, okay? Things are not going very well, then Asa takes over. So what I've tried to do this morning, if you can forgive my poor illustration here, I'm going to try to go through Asa's life through three sections using a timeline up here, and we'll talk about a few major life events. Um, first of all, the first period, the first 10 or 15 years or so of Asa's reign I think we can characterize in a couple words would be reform and peace. Reform and peace. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles there, chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, And Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars in high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. So far, so good. Continuing on, verse 5, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. Verse 6, there was no one at war with him during those years. So after the death of Solomon, we've got 20 years of turmoil, and then Asa takes over, and it's like a breath of fresh air. We've got 10 or 15 years or so. The timing is a little fuzzy when you, to try to interpret. We've got 10 or 15 years or so of peace and reform. Asa um, turns, the, turns the country back uh, to God. Well, in the 15th year, we find that Asa encounters his first problem, and it's a big one, the battle with Zerah. You may just call it the battle. Uh, the Bible says in verse 9, chapter 14, Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men, an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Maresha. This is the largest force that we read of in the Bible. A million-man army. The only one that could possibly be larger than this one is Shishak's from 30 years pre previous, where the Bible says they just simply they couldn't be numbered. But by number, this is the largest army that we read of in Scripture. Now, um, commentators and Bible historians, guys that are a whole lot smarter than me, identify Zerah as the Egyptian pharaoh Oscaron I. 
Oscaron, they think, was Ethiopian by birth, but he mar married the Pharaoh's daughter. And so when the previous Pharaoh died, he became Pharaoh by right of his wife. And the reason I bring that up is just, I'm kind of a history geek, but the reason I bring that up is whether or not he came from Ethiopia, which is down in this region, or whether or not he came from Egypt, that man brought a million people, at the, at the very least, 500 miles to battle. You talk about mobilization. Think about the effort it took to mobilize one million dudes to come across dry, you know, arid country for battle. I, I can't mobilize two kids to go to the playground without severe you know, hardship. But think about, it probably took them at least a month, maybe probably two months. Let's just say two months. Think about the amount of food you've got to prepare for to feed a million people to make a 500-mile march across the desert. Here's my point. This is a big deal, right? You bring a million people across a country. You're not there to make a treaty. You're not there to barter. You're, not there. You're certainly not there to make friends. You're there to seek and destroy. You're there to kill, pillage, and plunder. This is a big deal, big problem. Million people. Now, the Bible says that Asa, Asa and his army, they're no slouches. They've got a, a 580,000 men. But still, the odds are two to one. He's up against two to one odds. So the question is, how does he respond? Here's the answer. Asa prays. He prays a prayer there in verse 15. It's a beautiful prayer of trust. The Bible says this, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides thee to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in thee. And in thy name have come against this multitude. O Lord, thou art God. Let not man prevail against thee. The result is, the Bible says that God routed the Ethiopians. Verse 12, so the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. And verse 13, so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover. Bible scholars point out that you don't read for another 300 years. For another 300 years, you never read of Egypt marching into the promised land area with hostile intentions. It set them back 300 years. But Asa's reaction, he trusted in God and he prayed. All right. Problem number one, solved. Section of his life, number two, I think we could describe in two words, or a few words here, further reform and prosperity. Further reform and prosperity. What follows the battle with Zerah is 20 years of prosperity for the kingdom of Judah. Uh, we'll skim through this really quickly. God sends Asa a prophet um, who encourages him. Asa institutes further reform. He restores the altar. The Bible says that he commands all of Judah to gather together and they renew their covenant vow to God. On that day, the Bible says they slaughtered 7,700 animals, 7,000 sheep and 700 oxen. Imagine being the cleanup crew that day. 8,000 animals nearly they killed in sacrifice to God. So the Bible says this, the Lord in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, the Lord gave them rest on every side. Here again, more peace, more prosperity. Verse 18, this is a point I want to make real quick. He brought a, um, Asa brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. We'll bring that up here in a little bit. Verse 19, 
there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. 20 years, plus or minus, 20 years of peace and prosperity follow uh, the battle with Zerah. Well, we come to the 36th year of Asa's reign, and we've got another problem. 2 Chronicles 16.1 says, In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or, to come, or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Now, fortifying Ramah, Ramah is here along the boundary line, along the border between the two uh, countries here. Fortifying Ramah, what I understand from uh, a few commentaries, I think what we would say would be, he started a blockade. It says he fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in. He started a blockade in order to keep people from going in and coming out of Judah. The Bible says that when people in Israel recognized that God was in Judah, or with Judah, that they all started flocking to Judah. And doubtless, Baasha was probably pretty jealous. But anyway, point here is, we've got another problem in the form of a blockade. So, and I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm sure it had some economic, you know, consequences. Which of these two problems do you think is worse? A million people out to destroy you or a blockade? Probably we would choose the million-man army. Notice his reaction, though. Verse 2. Notice what's missing from his reaction. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Benadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, now Aram was the northern neighbor of Israel. So basically what he's doing is he's going to send some tribute money to Aram, to Benadad, and say, you guys attack Israel from the north so that they'll leave me alone. Well, that's exactly what happens. It works. Verse 3, let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, that he will, he will withdraw from me. That plan works. Problem solved. Uh, Baasha withdraws, and the blockade is over. But again, notice the difference in the two reactions to the two problems. And notice the difference in the problems themselves. Then the Bible says in verse 7, there in chapter 16, at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to see Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. You have, indeed, you have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have war. You will surely have wars. Well, of course, Asa is not too happy about what the prophet says. And so the Bible says that Asa was angry with the seer. And he put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed the people at this time. The third and final section of his life, about five years in, in, in length, I think we would describe as decline. After the blockade, we find that Asa, he puts the prophet into prison. He oppresses some of the people. And then the Bible says there uh, in verse 12, in his 39th year, and in the 39th year of, his, year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was, was severe. 
Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st reign, uh, 41st year of his reign. My friends this morning, how does a person go from sacrificing 8,000 animals to no mention of God whatsoever in a span of 25, 26 years? How does that happen? The only clue that we have is that he went through a period of prosperity. He went through 20 years of prosperity. And so I think that we can reasonably conclude the issue at hand is he let self-reliance set in. He was looking around thinking, everything's good. My Amazon orders are coming in in two days. I don't need God. I submit to you this morning, he let self-reliance set in. He let self-reliance set in. The point here that I want to make, and of course, the Bible says that he relied on the king of Aram. He relied on the, on the physicians. The point is, he did not rely on God when he came to a problem. And while he was relying on other people, I think the, the, the temptation for us today, for all the reasons that we talked about, the temptation for us today is to rely only on ourselves to solve our problems, to rely on ourselves to meet our needs. That's the problem. In either case, the point is there are dangers. There are dangers in not relying on the Lord. There are dangers in not relying on the Lord. Danger number one. We'll make three points and we'll be done this morning. Danger number one. Self-reliance will diminish your prayer life. Self-reliance will diminish your prayer life. We find when Asa came up, came up against Zerah and the million-man army, the very first thing that he did was pray. The very first thing that he did was pray. And in that prayer, he says, it's a prayer of just total trust in the Lord. He says, there is no one besides thee, and we trust in thee. First thing he did was pray. But we find that when he comes up against the blockade from Baasha, where's the prayer? It's like the old Burger King commercial. Where's the beef? Where's the prayer? There isn't one. You see, when a person becomes self-reliant or over-self-reliant, in his or her mind, there's no reason to pray. There's no reason to pray. I ran across this quote from Brother Irvin Barnes while we were doing our study on 1 Timothy. This is really what ignited this study. Mr. Barnes says this, The person who has no trust or confidence that God can or will supply his needs is not likely to bother himself with prayer and supplication to God. He's not likely to bother himself with prayer and supplication to God. My friends, I believe this is exactly what happened to Asa. Somehow, somewhere during that 20-year period of prosperity, self-reliance set in to his mindset. The Bible says again that he sacrificed nearly 8,000 animals when he renewed his vows. 
So let's just assume during that time period, he's praying three times a day. But slowly, yet surely, as self-reliance crept into his character, his prayer life started to diminish. He went from three times a day to once a day, once a week, once in a while, to never at all. Self-reliance will diminish your prayer life. So the question this morning, now Mr. Barnes goes on and says this, prayer and supplication then is an indication of one's trust in God. So we've got some time for self-reflection really, really quickly. If your prayer life were the only indicator, if your prayer life were the litmus test, how much trust would it prove? How much trust would it prove today? Now, the verse that Mr. Barnes is commenting on is 1 Timothy 5 and 5. He's talking about widows indeed. Now, she who is a widow indeed, who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, of course, a widow indeed has no one else to rely on. And so her only source of hope, only source to rely on is God. But I guess my question for us today is, as it describes a widow indeed, someone who continues in supplications and prayers night and day, should that only describe widows indeed? Or should that describe all of us? Should that only describe people when they become widows? Or should that describe us before we are even close to getting there? I think the answer is pretty obvious. We are to be a people who constantly approach God with entreaties and supplications. As the Bible says, pray without ceasing elsewhere. Number one this morning, self-reliance will diminish your prayer life. Self-reliance will cause you to treat God like an ATM. You hit a problem, you run to God, you cash out a few prayers, and when the problem's over, you come back. And you've just set him aside for a little while. It can't be that way. We have to be people who entreat God, fix their hope on God, and continue in supplications and prayers night and day. Secondly, self-reliance takes away from God. Self-reliance takes away from God. I take this phrase here um, from the parallel account in 1 Kings 14 and 18. Uh, in 2 Chronicles, it says it a little more mildly. But here it says, Then Asa took all the silver and gold which were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. I'm not sure what he was thinking here. Perhaps he was thinking, well, I put it in there so I can just take it right back out. But I guess my point here is Asa physically took from God. Yet for us, when we are over self-reliant in a spiritual sense, are we not doing the very same thing? When a person is self-reliant or over self-reliant, we take away from God. We take away from our relationship from God. We take away from our trust in God. And as we just pointed out, we take away from our communication with God as well. Self-reliance takes away from God. I have always pictured when I've read this story, I, I don't know why. Well, I do know why, but I've always pictured Asa like this man in this picture. Baasha comes up against him with a blockade. And remember, self-reliance is set in. And so there's Asa. 
He's lying awake at night, eyes wide open, and he's thinking, what am I going to do about this problem? Maybe I should muster up the army. Maybe I should start my own blockade. Maybe I should call Benadad and send him some money and get him to attack from the north. That's it. I have figured it out. Self-reliance. And I guess the reason why I picture Asa this way is because I do the same thing. I'll give you a couple of personal examples. Obviously, we're in the middle of a move that's not going like we would have drawn it up. If you would have told me X number of years ago that at 34 years old, I hate to even admit it out loud, <laughs> you will move back in with your parents, I would have either laughed or cried. One of the two. Like I said, it's not going how we would have drawn it up. And so there I am, lying awake at night, and I think to myself, maybe I should hire a new realtor. Maybe I should get a second job so I can afford these houses. Maybe I should move us to Mississippi or South America where prices are cheaper. I don't know. But there I am, laying awake at night, wondering what am I going to do about it? Another example. Judy's and mine eldest offspring, our little blonde, does not have a lot of self-confidence. She tells me all the time, Daddy, I'm afraid people will laugh at me. That's hard to hear from your four-year-old. I've got to admit, I was not prepared for that this early. I, I, I expected that 10 years from now, right, when she's 14. I was not prepared for that this early. At this rate, next week she'll be asking for the car keys or a phone or whatever. And so just a few weeks ago, there I am, laying awake at night. How can I fix this problem? Maybe I should take her camping. Maybe I should take her canoeing. My solution to everything is camping and canoeing. I guess that's just a dad thing. Maybe there's something I can say to her that would help fix this. Where are we running? When we, when we face a problem, where are we running? Who, who, who are we looking to to fix our problems? Are we looking to ourselves? Or are we looking to God? Maybe part of the point in this story, again, Ace has got two problems. One of these is not like the other. And the Bible says that when he comes up against the blockade and he doesn't rely on God, the prophet tells him, you have acted foolishly in this. 
You've acted foolishly. My friends this morning, you've got a problem. Don't look to yourself. Where are you leaning this morning? As Proverbs 3 and 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on yourself. Cast your cares on the Lord. Look, I'm already worried about who she's going to marry, both of them, whether or not they're going to decide to be Christians. You've got a worry. You've got a problem. I don't... Here's the point. It doesn't matter how big it is. Take it to the Lord. Take it to God. Run to Him first. I'm not saying we just sit on our hands and hope something happens, but take it to the Lord first. Look to Him for your problem. Your problems may be 20 years away. We can start praying over our kids and the decisions they'll, they'll make today. Cast these worries on Him. Thirdly and finally this morning, self-reliance is hard to shake. Self-reliance is hard to shake, and by that I mean it is a hard habit to break. It's a hard habit to break. I've been looking forward to this point because I get to talk about habits. I don't know why, but I think habits and habit formation is fascinating. My favorite story about habits involves Tropicana orange juice. For 20-some-odd years, Tropicana orange juice... Their cartons looked roughly the same. You know what I'm talking about. The big old orange with the straw sticking out, Tropicana. They were about the same for about 20 some odd years. Well, in 2009, some genius in their marketing department or brand management decides, hey, let's change the look of our cartons. In eight weeks, Tropicana lost $30 million, two months and they had to yank them off the shelves. Here's the funny part. It's not like they were in a different spot. They were in the same spot. The, the, thing, the thing about it was is people who wanted orange juice for 20 years, they didn't have to think about it. They just ran up to the refrigerated section. They, without thinking, looked, found the orange with the straw sticking out, and they snagged it. It had become a habit. They didn't have to think about it. And so when they changed it, they didn't change location on the shelves. They were still there. People couldn't find them. They could, they, all of a sudden, they hit the what? And they had to start thinking. And so they lost $30 million. Here's the point. Where is he going with this? I know. Here's the point. Habits are easily formed, often without a, without a person's awareness, and once formed, they are hard to break. Now, apply that to Asa's life today. We find that in the 36th year of his reign, after the, the blockade, the Bible says, because uh, you have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aaron has escaped out of your hands. As I said before, I think we can reasonably conclude somehow, somewhere during this 20-year time period, self-reliance set in. Self-reliance set in. So he hits a blockade, and he doesn't rely on God. Three years pass. And then the Bible says in verse 12, the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. As a side note, I've often wondered if he had gout. Has anybody here ever had gout? I understand it's terribly painful. 
Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord. Three years pass, and again, he does not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Two years pass after that, and we, we don't read about him coming back. Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. So he goes through five years of not relying on, on the Lord. Here's my point. As we said, I think we can reasonably conclude in that time period of prosperity, in that 20-year period of prosperity, somehow, somewhere, self-reliance set in. He went from praying three times a day to once a day to once a week to never at all. And the problem was that became a habit. That became habitual. Self-reliance, like any other sin, becomes a habit if you're not careful. And once that habit developed, and then when calamity struck in a blockade, and then foot disease, he couldn't go back. He couldn't go back. That habit had formed. He, he couldn't break it. Self-reliance is hard to shake. It's like any other sin. My friend, if you're here this morning, and perhaps you've been self-reliant, or you've got some other sin in your life, and you're sitting there to yourself and you're thinking, okay, well, sure, but when I graduate, then I'll get it together. Or, nah, when I get my degree, then I'll get it together. When I get married, then I'll straighten up. When I have kids, then I'll get my act together. My friend, if that is your philosophy, you are waiting for an external event to make an internal change. And it just rarely, rarely works that way. And furthermore, you are giving a habit, a sinful habit, a chance to take form. You're giving it time to take form. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous. Again, self-reliance, like any other habit, is hard to break. It's hard to shake. He couldn't shake it. It started in the period of prosperity, and once calamity struck, he couldn't go back. He didn't know how. In conclusion this morning, self-reliance is dangerous, and we should be diligent to remove it from our mindset quickly if we find that we've fallen into it. Number one, self-reliance will diminish your prayer life. Two, self-reliance takes away from God. And thirdly and finally this morning, self-reliance is hard to shake. I hope these warnings have been beneficial to everyone this morning.